Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on the podcast today is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. So on today's podcast, we're going to spend most of the show discussing budget hearings that dominated lawmakers' schedules last week. We'll also talk about how budget priorities from Governor Kemp, you know, he supported increased teacher raises and the budget priorities of House Speaker David Ralston, who has supported more income tax cuts. We're going to discuss how those priorities fit into this discussion. And we'll check in on efforts by the Kemp administration to strengthen processes for reporting sexual harassment claims by state employees. But first, Luke, let's go ahead and start here with this budget discussion. So last week, the governor introduced his budget plan to the legislature in a series of hearings. Agency heads testified in these hearings on the impact that spending cuts ordered by Governor Kemp will have on their operations. Some agency heads highlighted the dire consequences of spending cuts, while others said that they could absorb these cuts without impacting service delivery. So, Luke, let's discuss these hearings and how lawmakers reacted to the talk of spending cuts. But first, to sort of lay some ground rules here, there's a couple of things that are just helpful to know about the budgeting process and and how the budget works in Georgia that sort of informs why we have this conversation in the way that we have it. So if you're an observer of the legislature, you've probably heard ad nauseum that the budget is the one constitutional requirement of the legislature every legislative session. They could pass the budget and go home. They're not required to do anything else. And so that process starts with the state of the state address where the governor talks at a high level about his priorities. Then he releases his budget report, which then goes to the House of Representatives. The House gets the first crack at shaping the budget into actual legislation. And that process starts with the House and the Senate hosting joint budget hearings where lawmakers hear this testimony that we're going to talk about today, and then the process moves on from there. A couple other things to know about the structure of the state budget. So you'll hear in news reports in our discussion that the governor is calling for budget cuts. But if you look at the raw numbers, the size of the budget is actually going to increase pretty significantly. And that is primarily due to the fact that we are a growing state. And a lot of spending by the state government is on programs that are enrollment driven. So if we have more people living in our state, we have more children in our schools. We have more people who rely on Medicaid for their health coverage. Uh, We have more people attending technical colleges and universities in our state. And if you're you know, let's take the K-12 education as an example here. If you're a student in Georgia, Georgia has a constitutional obligation to provide an education to you. There is no like cap on the money that can be spent to educate children in the state. So that's why a lot of those programs, the spending will go up because we're a growing state. And so when you talk about budget cuts that the governor has ordered, that are the subject of discussion in these budget hearings, they're actually on a small share of the budget, maybe about 25% of the budget, where these cuts will be felt more harshly because the other 75% on these enrollment-driven programs, they're not subject to cuts because you can't you can't tell a kid they can't go to school, basically. Um, and then one final rule to know about the budget is that it must be balanced. If we didn't... if Georgia was not required to balance its budget every year. The discussion around these cuts may not be as harsh because maybe you could deficit spend when revenue is low and then hope that it goes back up again. 
Um, you know, the federal government operates under much different rules than state governments. Uh, but we have to balance our budget, which is why cuts are very central to this conversation. When you pair it with spending priorities of Governor Kemp and slower revenue growth that the state has experienced in recent months. So those are basically your rules of the road for how to interpret this budget conversation. But Luke, let's start with the beginning of these budget hearings. These hearings are always kicked off with the governor making an address to lawmakers in these in this committee room. And what message did the governor send about the budget cuts that he has ordered in his proposed budget? Kemp's message on the budget, I, I feel like, can be really summed up just with one sentence <laughs> that he said, which was, uh, you know, quote, the budget before you shows that reducing costs doesn't require drastic cuts to other agency activity. And I think that's the message that he is trying to push out, that, yes, these are cuts, but they are not going to be uh, drastic cuts, and that, you know, he is, you know, do, doing the um, thing that, everyone does when they're running for office or in office, uh, you know, talking about how much money we can save by just like cutting uh, waste and, uh, you know, cutting duplicative uh, spending. And so, you know, one of the things that he pointed out is that the Department of Community Supervision reducing its budget by $1.3 million by increasing mobile technology and giving up its uh, physical location for a virtual office model. Um, and, you know, there, there are plenty of examples to give him credit of things like that. Um, but there are just as many other examples of cuts to positions and cuts to programs. And so, I, you know, I don't know how accurate his assessment is that these are not drastic cuts. I, I think the most fair thing that we can say uh, right now about his view on the budget is that it it remains to be seen how drastic these cuts will be and that it's really clear that um, some agencies are harder hit than others and some agencies will be able to adapt to these cuts far easier than other agencies. Yeah, I think some of the evidence that you can use to assess how honest the governor is being in his pitch of this budget is to also look at what agency had said in committee hearings this week. And there are a few examples to me of agency heads that have spoken out and raised concerns about the cuts and the impact on their agency. Gary Black, the agriculture commissioner, is one. He noted that the cuts to the Department of Agriculture are going to result in fewer food safety inspections, fewer animal industry inspections, and that meat inspections will have to be shifted over to federal partners. Judy Fitzgerald, who is the commissioner of the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities, this is largely an agency that is designed to provide mental health services, behavioral health services to some of the state's most vulnerable people. She gave some of the starkest testimony on the cuts to her agency. She called the cuts painful. She said that it was not possible for the agency to make cuts without a reduction in services, that DBHDD is somewhat unique in the mission that they have, and that they rely, so much of their funding comes from the state, that they, if if their primary source of funding is cut, it's hard for them to just find little efficiencies in other places like virtual offices or mobile technology or, or some of the things that the governor has put forward as painless cuts, DBHDD couldn't do it. Um, one other example where you saw some pushback in these hearings was Chief Justice Harold Melton from the Georgia Supreme Court. Uh, he was critical of cuts 
to accountability courts, uh, which is a main pillar of criminal justice reforms that were adopted under the Deal administration. Um, he testified that cuts to accountability courts may wind up in directing people to more expensive and less efficient alternatives. Luke, what is your reaction to some of that pushback by some of these agency heads? I mean, do you think that they, do you think that their agencies are the only ones that are going to deal with tough cuts, or maybe there are other agency heads that just weren't willing to be as forthcoming? What was your reaction to their testimony? I think it's interesting that the the people who were less critical of the cuts are the people whose checks are signed by Brian Kemp, and the people who, for the most part, were critical were the people who faced the Georgia electorate. And for me, I'm sure some agencies feel like they're at a little bit more liberty to uh, be harsher on the governor's proposal just because of how hard hit their agency or their program will be. But for the mo- for the most part, I think this illustrates where I started, which is just some agencies are being hit harder than others. And from what uh, Commissioner Gary Black is saying, he just does not seem to be confident that they can complete their mission uh, after these cuts. And, uh, you know, GBPI is putting um, their that department's cuts at $6.5 million. And uh, while a lot of their cuts are coming from eliminating vacant positions, it's not like they weren't trying to fill those positions. It's just that they had, you know, ironically, they had not been able to fill a lot of those positions because the wages offer offered in those positions were not attracting candidates. So if anything, uh, they're just doubling down on a problem rather than, you know, ma- solving anything. Yeah, that I think is another important point about the justification for these cuts and the way in which the governor's office is arguing that these are relatively painless cuts in a lot of instances is that they're eliminating vacant positions. And as you noted, Luke, some of these salaries are so low that it makes it difficult to attract people to those positions. Um, But, you know, Gary Black said that his agency was actively trying to fill some positions that are ultimately going to be cut. Um, They ended up also losing some call center workers in the Department of Agriculture. And that speaks to another issue here, which is even cuts to vacant positions are not entirely painless cuts, because at one point or another, the legislature and the agencies decided that these are positions that should be funded because they, sh- they, are, they need to be filled by people to do work for the state. And then they've had trouble fu- finding people for these positions because the pay is so low. So even if you're not having to make a direct, cu- direct cut to a service you're providing because you don't have to actually fire somebody who exists in the department and, and, and take away all the work that that person was doing, you're still not moving the ball forward on the goals that were set by previous budgets when these positions were funded. You know, so that's one justification for the cuts. We're going to get to other justifications here as we continue this discussion. But one thing that's interesting to note about the DBHDD testimony is that that actually got specific pushback by the governor's office. Candace Brochi, the governor's spokeswoman, uh, she wrote in an email to the AJC that the administration did an in-depth analysis of the budget cuts that were proposed and that the claims by the commissioner were not supported by the administration's analysis and that the governor's office would not allow such a significant disruption to service to Georgians. You know, I don't, I mean, 
it's hard to judge that uh, because you don't really have evidence one way or the other. But the the interesting thing is if the legislature does follow through with these cuts, uh, we're going to know uh, because ultimately some of these services may not be provided. Or if you feel like the agency head is not being entirely honest, then the drastic consequences that she is projecting you know, just won't come to fruition. We're going to know one way or the other after the fact. The hard part is with DBHDD services, these are mental health, behavioral health, substance use services for really vulnerable people in our state. And the consequences of not providing those services and not addressing a problem means that people could die or people could continue to deal with serious mental health issues or serious substance abuse issues I mean, the stakes here are really high. Another place where the stakes are high, but where an agency head didn't give this gloomy projection for cuts was in the Department of Public Health. Kathleen Toomey, the the commissioner of the Department of Public Health, said that there would be minimal or no reduction to services in that department um, and that her agency had the flexibility to adapt financially to cuts. The biggest cuts here are cuts to grants to county health departments. But lawmakers on both sides of the aisle seemed skeptical of the sunny picture that Kathleen Toomey put on the cuts to her agency. Clay Prickle, who's the appropriations vice chair and a Republican, he said that Toomey put a pleasant face on a really tough subject matter. And that if you're going to put more pressure on counties to fill in some of this funding for their county health departments that some counties, particularly counties in rural Georgia, have trouble keeping the lights on. Mary Frances Williams, who's a a Democratic representative, she said that Toomey couldn't really be honest about the cuts because she would face criticism from the governor's office, similar to the way in which the DBHDD commissioner did. Luke, what do you make of this dynamic I think what is notable about this specific discussion on, you know, these health benefits is you're looking at departments that I I think if we're being objective and listening to the conversation in Georgia from both Republicans and Democrats and just like everyday people, mental health, drug treatment, treatment courts, and just health services in general, but especially in rural Georgia, these are problem areas. These are the places where we have been saying for a while now that there's more that the state could do and that the state's not doing enough to address these issues. And so, you know, if they are being honest, the the administrators and commissioners that say that this is not going to affect services, the only way that that is true is if that means that they will be continuing to maintain the current inadequate level of service that is being provided. And it's it's one of those things that, like, you know, even if they're right that they're going to be able to keep doing everything that they're currently doing, it's pretty much the consensus of most legislators and, and most just people that deal with these issues that not enough is being done or on the flip side especially with like something like accountability courts that this is a program that is working and if anything it should be getting more money not less and so i i am I agree with you that I think we're unfortunately not really going to know the answer to that until after these cuts go into effect or not. But I, I think at the end of the day, what the the headline should be is that these are programs that are either underfunded already or are working and should 
be getting more attention, not less from the state. And I think on that aspect, it's a big mistake. Yeah, what you raised there actually brings to mind um, the, it's called the CAPS program. It's a child care program uh, for low-income families in the state. That, to me, was one really stark example of the consequences of elections. Uh, Brian Kemp, in both the amended fiscal year 2020 budget, the little budget, and the big budget for next year, has half a million dollar cuts to CAPS in each of those budgets. Um, Stacey Abrams, when she ran for governor, she ran on a, a $290 plus million investment in child care across the state. Some of that money was going to go to the CAPS program. And she identified that low-income families, working families, have problems accessing child care in the state and that it was necessary to make a big investment in state-provided child care so that it could support people working. Whether or not you believe that Stacey Abrams could have found almost $300 million for child care, you, you can kind of set that aside and, and realize that she identified a problem in her campaign that she thought needed an urgent solution, and she put a plan out on that. Governor Kemp has not advanced the ball on that issue at all, and in, instead is cutting half a million dollars in this budget, half a million dollars in next year's budget. And so these pressing issues that we talk a lot about aren't being addressed by these budget cuts. So even if the cuts are not entirely painful on everybody, you're not moving the ball forward. The other thing, though, that, Luke, something you said brings to mind for me is that some of these cuts signal shifting priorities from the priorities under Governor Deal, the last administration, to the priorities under Governor Kemp in this administration. What did you make of some of those shifts on particular, particularly on the criminal justice budget? So one of Governor Deal's priorities that was not only fairly bipartisan in the state of Georgia, but something that the entire country, especially the federal government, had been paying attention to Georgia in a very positive way was criminal justice. And Governor Deal, as far as prior, you know, his priorities and his focus, really it was education and criminal justice, in my mind, where he spent most of his time and attention and care. And what we're seeing here is that a lot of the initiatives that Governor Deal uh, pushed forward in, in both just kind of the mentality, but also in just the like budget attention is, is really getting rolled back, rolled back. And so what, you know, what I mean for that is just like some of the most dramatic cuts that we're seeing in this budget are in places where Governor Deal either thought there needed to be more money or in places where he thought they needed to be new programs. So the accountability courts is one thing that we've already talked about. But there's also, you know, $54 million in cuts to the Department of Corrections. There's $43.7 million in cuts to state prisons. There's $19 million in reduced funding to the Department of Juvenile Justice. I mean, I could go on. There's there's so there's $6.6 million uh, cut from the Department of Public Safety. And, you know, 5.5 million of that is to field offices and services, which is uh, where the majority of that department's uh, budget is. And that's where the you know state patrol troopers uh, get paid from. Uh, you know, there's three point five million dollars in public defender cuts. I mean, again, there's just so, so many cuts to this department, which are and, which if Luke, if I understand correctly, those cuts are nearly one to one offset with uh, funding increases for prosecutors. 
right. And the the thing that I think we all can look at what Governor Deal was doing in criminal justice is that this this is a place where I feel like most people around the country are dissatisfied with how the criminal justice system works. And I don't really know who the constituency is that is like, you know what the problem with the criminal justice system is? The prosecutors are having a really rough time and that they aren't getting enough assistance. And while there are some people who might feel like everybody in the criminal justice system needs more resources, I don't think anyone is saying that if at the cost of everyone else, it's the prosecutors who need more assistance, not all these other programs. And, you know, the reason why that is so important is that, you know, prosecutors do a really important job. I don't want to, like, take a dump on prosecutors. One of my best friends is a prosecutor. Um, you know, their, their jobs are incredibly important. But their role in the system and, you know, the legal system, as much as I love it, is an adversarial system. It's their job to put people in jail. Like, that is what their job is. It is their job to, you know, that is is how they work in the system of justice, is that it is their job to find justice through punishment. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's oversimplification, but it's, it's generally true. Whereas all these other resources are there. Um, to ensure that justice is done through making sure that everyone, even the guilty people, get adequate representation. But even more importantly, I think this is where Governor Deal deserves a tremendous amount of credit, and the legislature does, because they, they you know, followed his lead in making this happen, is that, you know, jail might not be the right thing for plenty of people who have technically committed crimes. You know, drug addiction makes you do a lot of really stupid things. If you're addicted to drugs and you go to jail and you stay addicted to drugs and then you get out, you're probably going to continue to do those things if you don't get treatment. In Clark County, as we have you know, uh, spoken about before, a very large percentage of the population in Clark County Jail has some mental disorder. And, and just putting those people in jail is not going to help them with the actual problems that got them there. And while there's so much more we could do, we were at least moving in the right direction on these things. And to see these cuts, um, I, I feel like this is the area, and we're, we're going to go into this a little bit more in a minute, but like, if there's one area where I feel like the legislature is going to push back, if they push back, I, I hope it's on this, because this is something that, so many representatives were really bought into and really became, you know, partners in Governor Deal on. And this is one of the, the few places that I feel like everyone in the state was like, yeah, we should pay our, you know, we should pay our uh, law enforcement more. We should have more of these diversion programs. We should, we should do all of these things. And I, I'm, you know, I, I just don't see how this is going to stand after the years of deal. And I, I mean, it's it's going to be the hardest sell, I think, in this budget for Kemp. Now, one smaller one that I think is worth particularly you and I uh, noting here, Luke, is that there are cuts to the chief turnaround officer program. You know, this we talked about the Opportunity School District constitutional amendment that Governor Deal championed. Uh, that amendment was defeated, and so they went for a plan B, which established this position called a chief turnaround officer, which was, you know, Governor Deal argued was aimed at providing additional services and supports to schools with chronically low test scores and helping them turn around. Uh, Governor Kemp has cuts 
in both the little budget and the big budget to the turnaround officer program. And the only chief turnaround officer that Georgia has ever had, Eric Thomas, he resigned amidst an investigation and I believe is taking a job in Wisconsin. Um, and it seems unlikely that Governor Kemp will fill that position. Um, so a very unceremonious end to the chief turnaround officer program that Governor Deal spent so much of his political capital on. Yeah, I, you know, it is so funny to you know see that, that like the two big things that I laid out that Governor Deal pushed are two of the places that are being hardest hit by Kemp's budget. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's a good thing that they uh, don't have to go this same Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you know, we laugh at this program. This was, I think, a very particular item of support for Governor Deal. There are still larger issues with schools that are underfunded where test scores are chronically low. You know, this model probably wasn't the difference between those schools continuing to struggle and those schools suddenly being super successful. So there's still work to do there. uh, But yeah, kind of a a quiet end to that program (laughs) that Governor Deal championed. Um, But staying on this We need to do like an in memoriam for (laughs) for the the chief turnaround officer. We should. Um, But sticking with education for a minute here, Luke, if you look at this budget, it is not all cuts. There are places where spending is increasing. We talked about some of the automatic spending increases from enrollment programs at the beginning of this episode. But there are other places where the governor is actually seeking increases in spending. What are some of those other areas and what relationship do you think that has to all of this focus on spending cuts? So I don't know if this is shocking or unsurprising or, or what, but one of the things that Governor Kemp uh, really focused on in his campaign was that he was going to seek $5,000 in raises for teachers in the state of Georgia. And that was one of the things that you know people kind of rolled their eyes at because people on the campaign trail, they make promises all the time about stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of infamous that people won't keep those promises. And, you know, to to everyone's shock, last year, Kemp got $3,000 for uh, teachers. And, you know, people were unsure if he would go and get the extra, you know, the the other 2000 uh, this this budget cycle, but he did. And, and th- this is really where a majority of the new spending is coming is the places where Kemp is wanting to either pay people more or hire new people, which we'll get into a little bit uh, later with the uh, sexual harassment uh, division discussion. And and, th- and this is this is where I want to just like go out and say it and say it loud and proud. I was wrong. I was so wrong because I really thought that a lot of these cuts were being driven by a desire to finish the drill, per se, in Georgia parlance and to uh, pass the additional tax cut that they have set themselves up for uh, in, in previous legislation. And I, I just completely underestimated how much it costs to, to accomplish this goal of Kemp's. And it, it's it's just incredibly expensive. Uh, again, you know, Georgia... Uh, Budget and Policy Institute puts it at uh, $900 million over a two-year period to 
actually accomplish the full additional $5,000 for the uh, educators uh, raises. And, you know, I, I, I want to be clear here. This is something I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think most people in Georgia are probably uh, of the opinion that teachers should be paid more. We've discussed before that Georgia educators are, are fairly underpaid, especially compared to other states, and that, you know, when I was growing up, Georgia was seen as a leader in education, especially because of the Hope Scholarship, and we, we pay our teachers really well, and the um, QBE formula was something at the time when it was passed in the 80s was new and really good, and people were impressed with it. And so, you know, overall, in a vacuum, paying teachers more is really, really great. But what it appears to me and appears to, you know, Georgia Budget and Policy Institute is that a lot of the cuts that we're having to do are basically a result of the fact that Kemp is wanting to spend so much more money in this area and the fact that the state is, is really not open to any conversation of increasing revenue through uh, either increasing the tax rate uh for existing taxes or creating entirely new taxes. Um, you know, the only area that they're interested in at all is internet sales taxes, which we can get into a little bit later. Well, and there's also money to pay every state employee who earns, I believe, under $40,000 to give every one of them a $1,000 raise. And I think here it's helpful to refresh what all of the moving pieces are. So you have the desire by Governor Kemp to increase spending in certain areas, teacher raises, state employee raises, uh, some new positions related to his own office's priorities. You have slower revenue growth, which is driven in part by this internet sales tax issue where sales tax growth is lower because more commerce is being conducted in uh, on internet platforms that are not required to collect sales tax. You also have slower growth in the income tax, which is partially driven by the cut to the income tax rate that was adopted in 2018, also partially driven by the fact that we're close to full employment as a state, so employment growth is not you know, increasing as quickly. Uh, we're a growing state, and that means more people will be hired, but you can't grow as fast when nearly everybody is employed. Um, you know, there, there are other issues there that are underneath that that are worth discussing on uh, communities where there's job discrimination and, and, and some people don't have jobs. That's a whole other big piece of that discussion that's worth having. Um, but so you have slower growth in state sales tax revenue, slower growth in state income tax revenue. Um, you have the foundation for the income tax cut in 2018 was this belief that federal tax reform was going to deliver this windfall of revenue to the state. And people who were critical of the 2018 tax cuts said that that revenue may not ultimately materialize. They ended up being partially right uh, because revenue growth is slower because some of that windfall didn't materialize. There's complicated interactions with state and federal tax law that are kind of underlying all of that. Um, and then there's finally this discussion around whether or not the state is at risk of entering a recession. The state economist Jeffrey Dorfman, who is an economist at the University of Georgia, in September he said that there was a 50-50 chance that the state could have a mild recession next year, meaning 2020 this year. 
in his testimony in the budget hearings this week, he basically said that there's a zero chance that we're in a recession now and that we're unlikely to be one in the near future. But a lot of the rationale for these cuts, combined with all of these factors, I know this is a lot to absorb, but a lot of the rationale for these cuts was to be prepared for a recession. And it doesn't appear we're entering that recession. Combine that with the fact that the state has more in the in the piggy bank, our rainy day fund. We've got more in that fund than we've had in the last 18 years. And it raises for me the question of what these cuts are really trying to accomplish. Luke, there were there's a lot of factors there, but when you sort of take the broader view of these cuts, what what is on your mind in terms of what is trying to be accomplished or whether or not some of these justifications are ultimately true um, and how lawmakers may react? So I, I think you've answered your question without realizing it. Kyle, and we just have to, you know, put <laughs> I some, tend to some of that. these pieces. Yeah, yeah, you know, but like we have to put some of the pieces together here because I think the situation we find ourselves in is that your top line comment is the fact that we're spending more money this year. We're spending more money this year than we did last year, despite most of the conversation around the Georgia budget being the fact that we're doing these really big budget cuts. And so really, I think what it is, is you combine that fact with the fact that the reason why we're spending more money is to accomplish Governor Kemp's priorities. And there's really no way to do it if you're unwilling to raise taxes and that you're still flirting with a tax cut to pay for all the programs that we're trying to pay for. Uh, and, you know, focus on Kemp's priorities versus a previous governor's priorities and not have these these uh, spending cuts. Because, as you mentioned, we have put a lot more money into the rainy day fund. I think that's great because um, when a recession does come, you know, luckily our economist says it's not going to be this year. I think that's great. But when it eventually does come, you don't want to be in a situation like we were uh, during the Great Recession, where our rainy day fund was not that full, <laughs> like it, you know, it, it had some money in it, but it was not nearly as full as it is now. And if well, we and did forced, go into, well, go I was ahead. just going to say, well, and it forced really drastic spending cuts, including underfunding the education formula for nearly a decade. Right, and that's exactly what I was going to hit on. Is just like you want that fund to be full, and you don't want to be using it when the economy is good. And you know, there's again so many problems with the economy we go into, but there's there's a lot for a state making a budget. There's a lot of good things in the economy uh, for that. And um, when you're in a situation like this, you really can't be using it. You need to be putting money into it, which we've done a pretty good job of as a state. And I think the reason why these cuts are happening is because, like I said, they're not willing to raise new revenue and they want to spend more money. So, you know, <laughs> arithmetic is complicated, but it's not that complicated. You got to cut money. And I think that's why they're doing it. I think Kemp just has completely different priorities than Governor Deal. They are different human beings. And now Kemp holds the, the levers of power. And so that is why we're, we're, we're seeing the budget look this way, because he can't get done what he would like to get done without doing these cuts. What I'm really going to be curious about is many of the legislators who were in key positions of power during the deal administration, who made tough decisions to make deals priorities happen, who were fairly supportive and very positive about those decisions that 
deal made? Are they just going to throw away all of the work they did and be like, well, we have a new governor and I'm going to you know, follow his priorities and it's my job to to make what he thinks need to have happen happen, which, you know, is fine. That's that's a view that people could have. Or if they have a little bit more investment on these priorities and they're not going to want to see them, uh, you know, thrown to the wayside in this unceremonious manner. It does give me this vibe of like managing the state's decline as opposed to having an aspirational vision to continue to improve in any area besides being the number one state to do business, according to one magazine. You know, the world, the House Rural Development Council has been grappling with a lot of issues that are also interacting with these budget cuts. The lack of access to health care in rural Georgia is an economic development issue that makes it more challenging for companies to locate there. You're making a lot of cuts to substance use and mental health, to public health departments. They're also pursuing these Medicaid waivers that we've talked about before, where they're not really fully addressing the problem of the uninsured. They're going to extend coverage to under 10% of the state's uninsured in their Medicaid waiver. Um, and they're actually even making spending cuts to the agency that's supposed to help people sign up for Medicaid, while at the same time pursuing a Medicaid policy that will make it more complicated to sign up for Medicaid. So there's a lot of instances where you know, the puzzle pieces don't seem to line up for me. The policy choices are very confusing and I think create this predictable mess. And when you're doing that, you don't have an aspirational strategy to improve outcomes in the state on these kinds of areas. Uh, you know, Democrats were critical of the state of the state address for not having a discussion in there on maternal mortality, that's another place where there's a really big problem. It's healthcare related, and there's no strategy for moving the ball forward and fixing these problems. And so that's kind of the vibe that I get just generally from the budget, with the one exception that we're making investments in teachers, and that's great. Um, but that's kind of where I sit. And I do wonder, you know, how much lawmakers will push back Um because if you're a lawmaker who's worked on some of these priorities, fought tooth and nail for some of this funding, particularly if you've been around since 2010 and you've dealt with really lean budget years, um, now we're supposed to be in this great, awesome economy and we're still dealing with budget problems. Um, you've got that problem where you're not getting these investments. And then if you're like a moderate Republican lawmaker who's going to get you know, lit up in the election season over the state's abortion ban... It, I don't. It doesn't sound very fun right now. No, I mean it really doesn't. And what I'm really going to be watching now is just how serious the conversation around doing the second half of the tax cut is, because uh, House Speaker David Ralston, who is, as we always say in this program, incredibly powerful and influential, and controls what happens in ways more than the governor does a lot of times, has said that. He still wants to do the tax cut, or at least look at it. And I just I just don't see how you do it, because we, we already did part of that tax cut. We have the results, and they're bad. We, we were told, yet again, that it would increase our tax revenue if we cut taxes, and it didn't happen. And if you're looking at these cuts, and I mean, I would be shocked if you're a legislator who, as we've said, that you worked on these programs and you're going to cut them, that you're going to be happy about that. I feel like you're going to be a little frustrated that that's what you're doing. I, I really don't 
see what the logic would be in in setting yourself up for coming back in a year and having to do this again and having to just like watch all these programs get cut again and making these really hard unpopular decisions versus just keeping Georgia's really low tax rate really low instead of insane stupidly low because if there is a recipe to ensuring that Stacey Abrams or a Democrat is the next governor uh, of Georgia in the 2022 elections, I feel like it is doing a bunch of incredibly stupid cuts and making a bunch of really financially bad decisions. And so I, I think if there's anything that is 100% certain, that if that becomes a real discussion this year, that the legislature has gone insane. Well, that... To me, you know, Luke, you're not the only one who's skeptical of the tax cut discussion. Uh, the governor's budget was interpreted to signal that the governor did not support the additional tax cut. And during testimony in the budget hearings, the state's economists said that it would be difficult to do the tax cut within the structure of the budget that the governor had proposed, sort of solidifying, you know, he felt comfortable, he got the green light from the administration to say, Basically, we don't support the tax cut. The chair of the Senate Finance Committee, Chuck Hufstetler, he said at GBPI's conference on Friday that he didn't think the math would work to do this state income tax cut again. And so this also, just to sort of wrap up here, this also is kind of a proxy battle between the governor and the House Speaker, David Ralston, over who is going to have the most influence over this process, because Speaker Ralston, at least publicly, has not shelved the tax cut idea, but other significant players in this process have. And Speaker Ralston is the only person that I've seen so far of really of significance that is arguing that we need the tax cut, that we still need to do it despite the cuts and the other priorities that we've discussed in this show today. So, you know, it's a it's a proxy battle for for influence there as well. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right, and because you know we've we've been talking about the pet projects of uh, Governor Deal and Governor Kemp. Well, the tax cut has been David Rawson's pet project for sure. Um, yeah. So I, I will I will be curious to see how hard of a fight he puts up on that. But um, if I had to put my money down, I, I I would put my chips on we don't have this tax cut, and I I hope this is not just a wishful thinking on my part. Um, Luke, one final note before we go today. Um, you have been paying attention to actions by the Kemp administration on strengthening the processes for state employees to report sexual harassment. Can you just sort of recap what some of the news was for us on this and, and give us your reaction to these developments? Yeah, so this is a place where uh, Governor Kemp said he wanted to do more. It was one of the first things he did uh, when he got into office through, you know, his authority as governor was to basically, you know, the short version is to make it significantly easier for people who uh, feel like they've been sexually harassed to report it. And he required new training, which I think is positive, very very good that we did that because um, that has been a problem obviously around the country uh, and one of the other positive things that is in this budget is that he has put in money to hire more people to deal with the complaints because one of the consequences of Governor Kemp making it easier 
for people to report and uh, making it so that people felt like they had more ability to report these things and that he, you know, he, he very clearly made anyone in the state government think that he took it seriously and that he cared about these issues. Uh, and, and, and so because of that, as a result of him saying the right things and trying to look like he was doing the right things, a ton of more people reported sexual harassment complaints and it was frankly just too much for the state to handle uh and so he's put in money for additional positions to help deal with these complaints and help address these complaints and so i think that's a unabashedly good thing and you know again i we we talked about this i i I think i think a really important place to in this conversation on the budget is it's pretty much everything Kemp wants to do is a good thing. And as far as like where he wants to spend more money, and it's just a shame that we're, we're, we're handcuffing ourselves that to do, uh, you know, unquestionably good things like pay teachers more, hire more people to address sexual harassment complaints. We have to cause so much pain in other places and that the state is just completely unwilling to explore other possibilities for how to, deal with uh budget issues in georgia especially when um the economy is working for people that have a lot of money in georgia and it's working really well for people who are already well off and the places where kemp is really focusing these cuts uh, are the places where the people who aren't being served by the state are only going to receive less um going forward and so it's it's a shame that when we can be positive about the things that kemp wants to do and his goals that the way he is trying to achieve them uh has so much blowback well and i think it's also uh a testament to the power of the bully pulpit of the governor you know presidents are commonly described as having a bully pulpit to set the agenda to point people's attention to issues that are important um, you know, not only did the governor create new processes within state government for reporting sexual harassment, but he was vocal about this, made it an issue publicly, and that has its own sort of soft power on employees within the state government who may be resistant to those reforms. You've also seen Governor Kemp use his bully pulpit on the issue of sex trafficking. Both he and his wife, Marty, the first lady, who is the chair of the Grace Commission, have have shined a light on this issue, and that has motivated even private companies Companies to do additional trainings and things like that. Um, you know, so good examples of, of using the bully pulpit for, for positive issues there. But it is certainly complicated by the trade-offs that need to be made in the budget when you have to do the dollars and cents of how to fund these things. Uh, but with that, I think we are going to leave that discussion there. Um, you know, obviously, the budget conversation is not over. Moving forward, individual committees start to grapple with elements of the budget. Uh, the Appropriations Committee plays a big role here, but there are obviously sort of policy-specific priorities where uh, policies and funding for those policies is going to get discussed in other committees. And you know, early in session, Speaker Ralston was resistant to set an end date for session because it was unclear how this budget discussion would go. Um, my final takeaway from this week is that this could be a longer session because this seems like a very complicated conversation, a lot of moving pieces. That means a lot of things for us to look out for and for us to discuss with you on the podcast. So we will have more content coming on that. Uh, but for now, we're going to end it for today. So Luke, thanks for joining the podcast and breaking down the numbers with me. Happy to be here, especially for that. All righty, y'all. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye, guys.
That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.